Have any of you been watching uh, the TV series The Chosen? A couple back there. Uh, Ann West, Dr. Ann West here in the congregation has been urging me and urging me and urging me. So I said, okay, Ann, I'm going to watch it. Boy, I'm glad I listened to her. It really is very, very, not only entertaining, but eye-opening. It gives you a fresh set of eyes to see the life of our Lord. In Matthew 3, and Mark 3, the gospel lesson for today. I'm going to read the gospel lesson first. This is not my sermon text, but it has a lot to do with the sermon. In Mark 3, it says Jesus went home. The home there would be Capernaum. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but Nazareth was way off the beaten path. Nobody went to Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he quickly moved his headquarters to Capernaum on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee that was a center of trade for all the whole country. Everything went through Capernaum. So he went home to Capernaum and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's how popular Jesus had become. And when his family heard it, that means uh, we, we don't hear about Joseph again after Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. I don't know what, nobody knows what happened to Joseph when he died. It seems obvious he must have died sometime before this. But his family consisted of four brothers and there were sisters. We believe there are other children born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus, the firstborn, was born. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The Greek there could be translated, he's crazy. His family. Now, I, I can't imagine Mary would have joined in with that. I think she went to protect her son, number one son, from all the other sons, who thought he's nuts. They did not understand him. They just did not understand Jesus. Matter of fact, the scripture says they did not come to faith in Jesus until after Easter. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. That's one of the names for the devil. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Jesus called to them and said to them in parables, you can just see the bewildered look on his face. Are you guys kidding? How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, because they were accusing him of being in league with the devil, as Jesus was casting out demons, Jesus is saying, are you hearing yourself? What kind of logic is this? It's just goofy then Satan is divided. He cannot stand. He's coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. See, that's what Jesus was doing. He was plundering the property of the devil who had taken up residence in many demonized people. Jesus was a strong man who entered the house of the devil and was plundering his property. No one can enter a strong man's house, the devil's house, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. In front of Jesus, Satan was like silly putty. Couldn't hold a candle to him. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit 
never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were willfully denying what was happening in front of their very eyes. Then it says his mother, that's Mary, of course, and his brothers, there were four of them, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Remember, they thought he was... And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what I want to talk about is the Old Testament reading from Genesis 3. They, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, that was smart. Remember, if you, take, eat, if you eat the, this fruit from this tree, you will be wise. Yeah, really, tell me about it. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He, he was blaming Eve, but really he was blaming God. The woman whom you gave to me, I think it was fine till you brought her around. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What is this that you've done? And Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. By the way, chapter 3 begins by saying, now the serpent was more subtle than any of the creatures that the Lord God had made. Where'd the serpent come from? So who was Eve blaming? Well, it's all your fault, God. You had not made that stupid snake. Everything would be fine. Pass the buck. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Peanuts is coming back, have you heard? So one day, the two great theologians, Linus and Charlie Brown, were walking down the street chatting, and they, um, Linus uh, belied a philosophy that he lives by. Maybe you can identify. <coughs> Linus said, I don't like to face problems head on. I think the best way to solve problems is to avoid them. In fact, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or so complicated that it can't be run away from. <laughs> Our text finds Adam and Eve agreeing with Linus's philosophy. So in their newfound wisdom, because they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they ran away from the problem. They hid in the trees and bushes. Are you kidding 
They had foolishly and rebelliously defied God, disobeyed God, to listen to the devil. And it was for Adam and Eve a really tragic, words failed to express it any more grimly, this was the most tragic moment in all of human history. It really was. So a man took his little daughter to the beach, which she promptly refused to get into because she knew the water was way too cold. Now I relate to that. I used to live in Florida. If the water wasn't 90 degrees, I didn't get into it. Needless to say, I don't swim in Lake Michigan very often. <laughs> so what did the father do? He said, I want to get her into this water. So he took a tea kettle and he built a fire and he filled out that tea kettle, a little bitty tea kettle with some water and he got it boiling and he took it in great ceremony in front of his daughter and he poured it into the, along the shore. But the girl was really impressed and she promptly got right into the water. It worked! Where can you find a better example of one of Satan's tricks? He dilutes an ocean of unbelief with a steaming tea kettle of Christian ethics. He, puts a Christian, he wants to put a, a pious moral veneer over your life and mine so that we begin to fool ourselves. I'm just really fine the way I am. Matter of fact, I'm one of God's favorites. Hey. So we go wading in, self-satisfied and unaware that we are still bathing in an ocean of unbelief. We're not even close to the way God intended us to be, saved us to be, calls us to be. Not even close. Yet we fool ourselves. Adam and Eve had rebelled against their best friend and maker thinking that he had lied. That's what the serpent said. Why do you think he's telling you not to eat of that tree? Don't you know that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him? You'll be wise. Well, sign me up for some of that. And in a moment, they brought all the disease and the disaster the world has ever known. Can you imagine in a moment, it all came crashing down. Imagine how they felt when oldest son Cain slew his younger brother Abel, because Cain was jealous of Abel. By the way, Cain in Hebrew means jealous. Their life was in a horrible and horrifying mess, and there was absolutely no way out. Nothing Adam and Eve could do to fix it. Nothing. It was all their fault. All they had to look forward to was a miserable life and an eternal, endless death, separated from God. And Linus' philosophy, notwithstanding hiding, was not the solution to their problem. But thank God there was more. Because at such a tragic time as that, God came with the promise of a coming Savior. The last verse in our text says it all, but you got to keep it all in mind. What is God saying? God is speaking, remember, he's speaking to the serpent and to the serpent about himself and Eve. I will put enmity, God said to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring, little snakes, little demons, big demons, Satan and all of his evil cohort. 
I'll put hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Mankind. He. Remember when you were in grade school and they taught you all these rules of grammar? And one of the rules of grammar was every pronoun needs an antecedent. You're looking all glazed over on me here. What the heck was that? I missed that? Or you're trying to forget it? He is a pronoun. Every pronoun needs an antecedent means somewhere in that vicinity there's got to be a word that you understand he substitutes for. Otherwise, the sentence is meaningless. If I said, hey, great news, he's coming later, your question has to be, who's he? Because I haven't told you. Every pronoun needs an antecedent, otherwise it's meaningless. The only word grammatically that he, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring, her offspring, he, the only word it can refer to grammatically is the word offspring. One of the woman's male, because it's a he, not a she, male offspring is going to come and he's going to crush your head, serpent. but you will mortally wound him on his heel. Perfect picture. You know, you're going after the snake and you're, about, you're lowering the boom on his head and as you do it, he reaches up and sinks his fangs filled with poison into your heel. One of the woman's male offspring is going to come and get you out of this big mess. It's going to cost him his life, but you're going to get out of it. And that was the promise God made to Adam and Eve in the garden so long ago. It's a promise that gave them faith with a real hope. Did all their problems instantly go away? No, of course not. The worst was yet to come. But they knew that somehow, someday, a Messiah, Savior, would solve their problem, and it was going to cost him his own life. Today's Gospel reading shows how that wondrous promise was eventually fulfilled in the life of the rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus. When he came on the scene, people were still living in dire straits. Hey, name a time in human history when people haven't been living in dire straits. Name any time. You're going to come up empty. It's always been the same. People in Jesus' day, like today, were suffering from various diseases, poverty, heavy taxation, corrupt leadership. Sounds like headlines out of the state of Illinois. <laughs> Many had given up hope of ever getting out from under Roman tyranny. Many had given up the hope that there was ever, ever going to be a real Messiah to come. That was all a myth and a legend, you know. It really wasn't going to happen. But Jesus did indeed come to do battle with that old serpent, the old evil foe, the one we call Satan or devil. Jesus scorned his enemy's logic who said, hey, you're casting out demons because you're in league with the devil. And Jesus said, are you kidding? What are you thinking? Why would he give me permission to harm his mission? A house divided against itself, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. What you're saying is absolute nonsense. It doesn't work that way. On the cross it appeared as if Jesus lost the war. He was struck on the heel. He was mortally wounded. Dead. 
medically, every other way you can imagine, dead. He suffered hell. But on Easter morn, Jesus proved to all that he was the true and final victor. And when he died, he had paid for the sin of all mankind because he took our place and he carried our sin. And when he rose from the dead, that meant death no longer has the last word in life. Death does not have the last word in your life, the person next to you's life, anybody in this room, anybody in this world. Death does not have the final word. He rose from the dead. And that gives hope to all of us. I love the story about the ex-GI who went into the Chase Manhattan Bank in New York to take out a small loan. <laughs> you ever take out a loan? I mean, you sign this paper, that paper. This paper says that you sign that paper and you got to sign more papers until finally the guy ran out of time. They said, you're going to have to come back tomorrow to finish filling out all the forms. So he went back the next day, but he was greeted by a huge army of media people, newspaper writers, uh, TV cameras, the president of the Chase Manhattan Bank who congratulated him because his loan was the loan that pushed the history of the Chase Manhattan Bank over the $1 billion mark in making loans. And to celebrate that, that milestone, the Chase Manhattan Bank was giving this man's loan to him free. Probably said, why didn't I ask for 6000 600 Free! It's though they were saying, you know, all those papers you filled out promising you're going to have to pay back, forget it, this one's on us. We're picking up the tab on this. Your debt is already paid in full. You know, when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, one of the proverbial seven words that he rang out, he, he uh, shouted out was, it is finished. That's one word in the Greek language, tetelestai. And tetelestai we have discovered in archaeological findings and digs is the word that used to be written on the top of a, of a, um, a bill, a debt. People have been buying things on time since the beginning of time, you know. And when you filled out your loan, when you finally made the last payment, we would stamp it paid in full. They stamped it, wrote across it, Tetelestai. It is finished. What is? Your debt. You made the last payment, paid in full. Can you imagine when Jesus was dying on Calvary's cross, outside the walls of Jerusalem that Friday so long ago, as people were walking by and looking over their shoulder at those poor guys, those saps and suckers who were dying that way, and one guy in the middle cross yells out, paid in full! Someone said, he's delirious. He's announcing to you the good news, your debt has been paid in full. Not some of the debt, not most of the debt, the entire thing, wiped clean. God's saying, this one's on me. Actually, it's on my son. He died so that your debt has been paid in full. Oh my, that changes just everything, doesn't it? What hope that gives us. Hope that continues for all of us today, 2,000 years later. Even though we too live under trying circumstances. I was trying to think of a circumstance as I was writing this sermon that would illustrate, you know, I was a parish pastor for 40 years, 
boy, I lived through a lot of trying circumstances with people. It wasn't my trying, it was their trying, but as they were suffering, I was suffering. And I remembered the day when our district president in the Florida Georgia district, Tom Zender, came and he shared with us what had happened when he had gone to Fort Myers to officiate at the funeral of a little boy who was the son of one of our district pastors. The little guy had drowned in the backyard pool. Most of us, of course, didn't have the opportunity, the leisure, the time to travel down to Fort Myers, but we were all interested. And Tom just started telling us about what it was like. The place was, as you could well understand, was jam-packed. This is a little guy. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral of a little child. It's not a full casket, it's just a little tiny casket. And Tom said the worst part of it is what before they, before they left the chancel, before they left the sanctuary, as the family was passing by, the little guy's next older brother, so not a whole lot of distance in time, he came and he just threw himself, his body, over that little casket to say thank, goodbye. We were listening to him a week after this happened and there weren't very many dry eyes. <sighs> Trying to put yourself into the Asmus family shoes. I've done a lot of funerals in my life and oftentimes I'll say, especially if the circumstances are tragic, what do people who aren't Christians do at a time like this? What do they possibly do? What do they think? What do they say? What do they possibly have to look forward to the next day, the next year, the rest of their lives, and for all eternity? They don't have the hope we have. They think it's a joke. Some people are facing their own or loved one's cancer, or Alzheimer's, or COVID. Fill in the blank. There's lots of blanks. The state of our country, the rest of the world, seems to be in utter shambles. In many ways, I feel more hopeless about the future today than I have my entire 71 years. I'm just being honest. I, I see grim days ahead. I hope I'm wrong. But regardless of what we may have to live with or die under, there is a promise the same promise God gave to Adam and Eve, a, a promise that sustains us. It's a promise made sure in Jesus Christ. Man, I love the story. A man was filling out a job application, and he came to the question on the job application, have you ever been arrested? And he answered, no. The next question asked, why? It was obviously meant for the people who had answered the first question, yes. Except he didn't understand that, so he answered the second question by saying, never got caught. <laughs> you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you ain't ever going to fool God. You may have a veneer over you that looks, you know, like kind of like that tea kettle in the, in the shore. You know, it seems like, wow, that's making a big difference. And, I'm sorry, your little moral veneer doesn't go very far. You can't fool God. He knows exactly what we are. Whether we've been caught or not, you do know we're sinful. 
We've been through that already this morning with our confession. So you know you're sinful. And you have no hope apart from the hope, the only hope that God offers you. And it's a hope that's offered to everybody. It's one Savior, but one Savior fits all. He came for all. He died for all. And if we believe that promise, then we are free indeed. God's love is ours regardless of what we have done or not done because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on his grace. And his grace is an ocean. It's vast, enormous, enough for everybody. Jesus is our worth and in him we are loved. The boy was flying his kite. Remember fly kites? I've seen this before. Kite was up so high, I didn't know where to look. I couldn't even see it. Somebody said, well, it's over there. And I kept looking, I don't see it. It was up so high. And a little boy was flying his kite, and somebody couldn't see where it was, and he said, are you sure it's still there? And the little boy handed him the string, and he said, yeah, you can feel the tug for yourself. We live by faith, not by sight. I don't always see what I want to see with my eyes, but God's promise is, whether you see it with your eyes or not, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see Jesus. Don't you see Jesus? Don't you see your Savior? He's there for you, for me. We have his promise that sustains us at all times. So we, like Adam and Eve long ago, feel its pull on our heart. It's unmistakable. It's real. It's true. There's nothing better than believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what a father said to you long ago, Jesus, when he brought his possessed son to you. And you asked him, do you believe? I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. By the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, we do have faith in you, and yet we know our faith is not perfect, never has been, never will be, because we are sinful people. Help me to grow, Lord Jesus, in faith. Help me to grow by that precious body and blood you gave me to eat and to drink earlier this morning, that I may leave more attached to you with my eyes of faith looking upon you every day of my life. Open my eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you in your holy name.